Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Cindy Etler, the author of Straightling. Um, before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduce drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol, it's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Um, tonight, it is October 11th of 2012. Our guest is Cindy Etler, the author of Straightling. She's with us right now. I'm going to bring her on. Cindy, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm happy to have you on the show. Um just uh, want to tell people we did a story about we did a show about straight uh, a few months back um, called Surviving Straight with some of the survivors, and here's another story uh, to give us some more in-depth information about the same thing. A little background: um, Straight is one of these teenage rehab boot boot camp type uh, programs. It's really uh, it's developed out of therapeutic communities, comes out of Synanon. Um, they basically torture teenagers and they don't rehab them. It's really a horrible thing that you should never send any child to ever. Um, with that as a, pre- with a preface, so we know where we're going, um, I'm going to ask Cindy a few questions here. Uh, Cindy, how, how much drugs and alcohol were you using before you were sent to rehab? Um, I, well, the, the short answer is I probably smoked pot three times and I had been drunk once. Um, I smoked pot for the first time in September and I was put into straight in November, two months later. Uh, how old were you? I was, well, I was 14. I turned 14 a month before I went in. And they had no problem assessing you as an alcoholic and a drug addict. No problem at all. No problem at all. Um, and it's 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 hard to um, explain it in a you know in a in a condensed format. But basically, um, here, here's the easiest way to describe it. And in, in the end of my book, in the epilogue, I have um, some documents from Straight Incorporated internal documents that were sent from staff to parents and things like that. And there's one document that is stressing to parents, when you speak to potential straight customers, do not mention anything about what we do here. The goal is, and here's the key point, the goal is to have them come in for the assessment so that their child can be diagnosed as drug dependent. So the bottom line really was any child who walked in the doors of straight was a drug addict, according to straight, um, because they weren't. They didn't exist to, to to treat drug addiction. They existed to make money off of desperate parents. Um, yeah, we should really do a show about this topic sometime, just about the topic of assessment, because um, it's not just a straight or some of these really torture-type rehabs that do this. Um, 
every everyone that makes a profit, uh, there's a huge number of these places that just uh, rubber stamp everyone as alcoholic, chemically dependent, first of all, because it's very profitable. Um, and many of the people that do the assessments are also true believers in, uh, say, a 12-step program or something. My own personal experience, I'm going to mention, I was assessed by Hennepin County by true believer and you know I later uh, wound up uh, taking some people to court and I asked for all my papers and got them all faxed to me mm -hmm. I found out that he had made up answers to all these questions that he never asked me and just wrote down whatever he wanted to say on the paper because he thought you know that anybody that showed up needed to be in rehab and that would you know be really good for them so he didn't care what my personal experience was he just right. So, you know, this is not uh, an exceptional thing, but th there are a lot of things about straight that are uh, exceptional. Well, they, they have a lot of precedent in the past, but we, we're going to get to some of this. I want to get to, I want to stick to your own experiences before we get too far afield. Um, okay. I, you had run away from home, is that correct? I had, yep. And do you think that's why your uh, your parents or tell me tell, what was your family like? Um, what were you, what was your family situation? Well, it's interesting. I started out um, kind of at the top of the heap. My father was a famous composer, if you can believe that. Um, Alvin Etler was his name when they opened Carnegie Hall in in New York. Um, they at the opening concert, the show featured Alvin Etler's music, so at birth, I was destined to be some sort of a bigwig. Unfortunately, my father died a year after I was born. My mother, out of desperation, married a man um, basically to get a roof over our head, and that man was an abusive alcoholic and a child molester, so you know you can kind of fill in the blanks there from the age of three up until I ran away at age 13. Um, I was living in, you know, the, the terror dome with this, with this lunatic, uh, abusive guy. Um, and my mother just kind of turned the other way. You know, she just pretended nothing was happening. Um, so when puberty hit, I started to fight back and took matters in my own hands and ran away. Um, so, and uh, this is often the case with with um, with teenagers. The, the teen who's in an abusive situation reacts to what's going on, what's being perpetrated to them by the adults in their life, and then the teen is punished for their reaction to the abuse. Um, so I think that's what it boils down to for me. Um, I ran away. I was arrested for it. I was a bad kid. That's, you know... That was that was it for for Straight Incorporated and for the authorities at that time. Um, there was no um, just there was nobody looking at what was lying under my behavior at that time, which was of course the abuse. Mm -hmm. Do you think they did a big selling job on your mother that uh, your behavior indicated that you were a drug addict? Absolutely, it's really fascinating if you research Straight Incorporated. And there's a website, survivingstraightinc.com, that has just scads 
of documentation. As I mentioned, those internal documents, first-hand documents, um, that illustrate exactly what Strait was doing. They were spreading the word far and wide that they were the solution for, um, you know, kids who are in trouble. So um, they there was all kinds of media coverage. In fact, um, Princess Diana and Nancy Reagan visited Strait Incorporated just a week before I went in. That's how um, someone in my family heard about it. Um, so they were... They, it, there was all kinds of propaganda out there about how straight was solving the problem of these kids and the just say no 80s. Um, but even more interesting is the fact that parents, families um, of the kids who were locked up in straight, they had to go out and proselytize about straight incorporated. They had to. That was part of the that was part of the deal, and they were all brainwashed, you know, into you know, believing that straight was the solution and all that. Um, so straight had all kinds of machinations going to uh, to convince people to send their kids into the into the program. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as I can tell, one thing they didn't have anything of was any scientific evidence that they were effective in reducing drug use. Right, not mm-mm. there. There are some kind of um, shady figures out there about success rates, but you know, no hard science. And those quote-unquote success rates, um, I think, were 100% bunk as well. You can throw any kind of numbers out there you want. There was nobody following up on those numbers and you know, um, validating any of it. So no, no, no science. No science behind it. As you mentioned in your opening, um, the program was based in Synanon, which was um, which was a cult in California that that created um, attack therapy as a means to uh, as a means to create change in people. Attack therapy, and it is just what it sounds like. Um, you're attacked by your peers as a means to I don't know make you hate yourself and want to change. I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, attack therapy or confrontational counseling, as it's also called, has been analyzed yeah. quite in depth by William Miller, who's a really good scholar, and other people. William yeah. Miller has a paper on this in Counseling Magazine. It's also uh, in his interviews with Bill White. You can find both of these online in full text. Uh, confrontational yeah. counseling is found either ineffective or harmful in all cases. There is no evidence of any good effect from confrontational counseling. Right. I'm not surprised. And, well, one thing I want to get back to is uh, do straight head celebrity endorsements. and uh, But so did uh, Jim, Reverend Jim Jones of the famous Guyana right. Kool-Aid massacre. He had his picture taken with uh, Lillian Carter, first lady from, you know, President Jimmy Carter's era. Uh, but, right. you know, he... He wound up, you know, well, everybody knows about the guy on a suicide, you know, aside. Um, so a celebrity endorsement is not a reason to pick a rehab program. <laughs> no, apparently um, it's not. What are some things you would look for if uh, you had a child that uh, had a drug problem and you thought they needed a rehab program? What would you look for? 
I would make sure that I um, went without the child and spent time with the adults that the child would be interacting with. Now, I have the benefit of just having a really good radar for um, whether adults are kind or not in their approach to teens, but I would really be looking for somebody who listens. That's key. Um, anybody who is asking asking questions about what's going on without without having an answer that they are looking for, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. If you know, if you say my teen is doing this, and and someone starts nodding their head, oh right, I know that, and that means X. That's not a good sign because. Like you said about the guy who um, made up lies about you to diagnose you, um, if anybody who's trying to pigeonhole a young person into any sort of um, you know label or diagnosis without having met them or or hearing anything about what's going on with them, eh, bad bad idea. It's got to be an individual, you know meet the kid and find out. Just like I was saying about my situation, there was so much going on behind the running away bit. Um, so that was long and tangential, but really just listening. I'm looking for adults who listen and, and respect. You can tell that they respect the young people. Yeah, I think there's some points that I would really like to warn people about, uh, things to look for and things to look out for. First, um where is the treatment going to take place? Are they going to ship your child to the Philippines, out of the country? Is it going to be local? Um, and second, can you visit your child? Can your child contact you freely? Um, and is there a time limit? Right. That's such a good point. With straight, I think they just milked their quote-unquote clients for as long as there was um, a check coming in. I mean, I met a guy at a straight survivor party last year that was in there for four years. Four mm-hmm. years. And how yeah, long were you there? That's a really good point. 16 mm-hmm. months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not 28 days that we see in the movie. Oh, no. No, no, no not 28 days. So uh, how... How did people finally graduate? What was the process that people had to go through from entry to finally getting out, whether a year, two years, three, four years later? There were phases, quote-unquote. You know, the first phase involved just a lot of physical humiliation and and um, you were in the building for... 12 to 16 hours a day and you had no trust and things like that and um, you couldn't move on to the next phase until you had admitted that you were an addict and and then had also unreeled a huge list of um, quote-unquote incidents from your druggy past that were horrifying. People had to make up lies in order to convince the group, I have faced the fact that I am an addict. And once the group believed that you believed that you were the devil, then you could move on. And that's, you know, that's hazy. But it, it when you're in the situation, it, you know, you just, well, uh, it's it's impossible to explain how they knew that you were okay to move on. But basically, when you were effectively brainwashed and your eyes were spinning in circles, 
that mm-hmm. meant you could move on to phase two. Um, and it sort of progressed that way through five phases. And um, at some point, at when you had been on fifth phase for six months, nine months, you know, a year, whatever. I don't know how they decided it was time to seven-step you or graduate you. Um, I'm sure there was a methodology behind that. Um, when I was researching for my book, the um, investigations that were that were really starting to happen, the investigations on Street Incorporated by the state, um, those were really gearing up right about when I was graduated. So my suspicion is when I graduated, they were kind of springing us to um, clear the decks, if you will, before you know before the investigations really dug their teeth in. Mm-hmm. Well, it might not. It might be that they didn't even have a really good criteria. Maybe people just did what they felt like, and they advanced you just when they felt like they wanted to. Right, it could very well be. I, I was never on staff there, um, and I'm not I'm not friends with anybody who was on staff, so I really haven't um, I, I'm, I haven't been privy to the to the answer to that. But it's a good question. I'm going to see if I can find anything out about that. Actually, now um, let me. Um, who was it, who was in charge? I mean, who was directly in charge of the newcomer kids, the first phasers? Was there was their staff taking care of them, or was it their no. was it their peers? Tell tell me about that. It it was actually the the staff was our peers. The staff in each street incorporated was um, teenagers who had been through the program. There were some executive staff members at each facility, a handful of them, two, three, four, um, but we rarely saw executive staff. So the day to day. The day-to-day work, if you will, rap sessions and psychological torture was done to us by our peers. Um, But literally taking care of us when we were first phasers were people who, as I mentioned before, there was first phase, second phase, third, fourth, fifth. Um, When you were a first phaser, you stayed at the home of someone who was on one of the higher phases. Um, So you... You stayed at their home, and when you entered the home, they locked every door in the house, they locked the windows, and at night you went into, the few hours that you actually were in a home, um, you went into a bedroom that was stripped of everything but a mattress and a blanket, everything. Nothing else was in the room. Um, And the windows were all locked with a key, and there was an alarm on the door. I mean, the fire hazards were off the charts, um, so if you tried to open that door, the alarm went off, and you know you were you were in deep doo doo. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's where you stayed, and they they um, you if you were if you were a newcomer who was not being held in favor at a given time, if they thought you needed to get honest or you were feeling sorry for yourself or you know, a whole host of other sins you might commit, they would put you in the toughest host home. Host home. So, um, you know, you wouldn't stay with the parents who were kind or who would let you have ice cream at night. You would be with the host home where you were going to be confronted all night long. Um, so that's, that's kind of how that works. 
Now, when it came to the legal status of straight, was it a day program or was it a residential program legally? Now, that's a good question. They um, straight deemed itself a day treatment program because when you are a day treatment program, um, there is a lot less kind of um, oversight from the authorities, from the state, from the mental health department. You can um, you're just you can kind of go under the radar when you're not a residential program. You can get away with a lot more. So officially, because we didn't sleep in the building, we didn't sleep in the straight warehouse, they were officially a day treatment program. Of course, the reality was, you know, we were, we were quote-unquote, being treated at night. It just was in a different, um, a different kind of jail cell, if you will. Well, you were in captivity. That, you yeah, were prisoners. We were. That's exactly right. We were in captivity. I've never heard it phrased that way. It's kind of a beautiful word. And yeah, we were in captivity. Um, when you when you were a newcomer, any time that you were standing, you had someone's hand clutching the back of your pants. They um, flipped the, an old comer slipped their thumb through your rear belt loop and dug the the rest, you know, the remaining four fingers into the inside of your waistband and kind of pulled it up, gave you a wedgie, and then steered you around so that you wouldn't run away and to humiliate you. And, you know, when you're a teenager and you're surrounded by your peers, <laughs> wow, you know, the the humiliation of that. Um, I work with teenagers now, and they can't stand, they cannot stand having to just tuck their shirt in. So, um, the you know, the dehumanizing factor of that is, is intense. And when we were leaving the building to go to the host home at night, um, that was the only time that we were out of doors in the 30 seconds walking from the car into the building and then from the building back to the car at night. Um, that was the only time we had fresh air. And when we were outside in a parking lot for that short, very short amount of time, we were kind of in public. Anybody driving by... Um, if they looked, we're going to see these kids being steered around by other kids with their hands in their pants. It's very, very strange. Okay, I want to bring home a point here. Um, in prison in the United States, all most of these things that we're talking about are illegal. You can't do them. They're a violation of, the, I think it's the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, Cruel and Unusual Punishment is... Um, and uh, it's also fire hazard. I mean, in prison, there have to be guards on hand, awake all the time to open the doors to let people out in case of emergency, even though people are locked in. In any other public institution, I mean, it's illegal to have doors that only lock from the outside that people can't open from the inside. You know, that's strictly illegal because it's a fire hazard. If someone's trapped inside by accident, they need to be able to get out. This is a law for all public buildings. I mean, all of these things are illegal. Um, these uh, torture therapy things are strictly illegal. You can't do them to prisoners, but it's okay to do them to teenagers if you call it treatment. That's right. That's right. Yep. Um, a lot of people, well, I won't say a lot of people, but there were lawsuits. Um, people suing straight after they got out. Um, some people were awarded significant amounts of money, and 
So, you know, good for them. And aside from that, it was illegal. And when the state did finally begin investigating, all of the straits were closed down um, for, for yeah. just that very reason. But they got away with it for so long. They just they were just under the radar. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to obfuscate and um, put, a, put a glowing face up for the public. And the other big part of that is the way they got away with it is, um, like I said, the parents were as brainwashed as the kids. So anybody involved with straight was out talking about how wonderful it was and not talking about all of this weird, um, untoward abusive stuff. We didn't believe it was abuse. We were brainwashed. We we believed this was the way to get saved, basically. Um, so the few people that, that managed to run away and would speak out against straight were seen as uh, kind of sour grapes or, you know, you're an addict who ran away. You're not trustworthy. Well, they were going to die, weren't they? We were all going to die, yeah. We we uh, were trained to say and believe if um, if my parent hadn't put me in straight, I would be dead or in prison within six months. And we said it all the time to anybody who would listen. So if you got this little, you know, scrub-faced child saying to you, I used to shoot up heroin, and if my beloved parents hadn't found Straight Incorporated, I know I would be dead or in jail within six months. That's powerful. It's a powerful sales tool. And we believed it. Because if we didn't believe it, we wouldn't be allowed to progress to the next phase to eventually get out of there. Okay. One more point I want to mention before we leave uh, the uh, comparison with prison is when you are sentenced to prison, you have a very definite sentence. And mm. you know when you're going to get out. You know what you have to do to shorten it, get early parole. You know what you're going to do to get in trouble and lengthen it. But it's very clearly written down. But you guys in straight were like on an indefinite sentence. that could last forever. You're right. You're right. And, you know, I've never heard that comparison made. That's really... Such a good point, and and now that you're saying it, I'm I'm really remembering that was in the beginning before you had surrendered to straight and before you um, believed. You know, it's it's Stockholm syndrome. Before you believed that straight was the only safe place for you, which you did end up believing because you were beaten into believing that. Um, but when you first got there, and before you drank the Kool Aid. That open highway, that question mark of when am I going to be out of here and having no answer to that and having no control over that was torture. And I cannot begin to explain the depth of that. I don't even have a word for for that pain of um, this. Like, this sucks, and I have no idea when I'm going to be out of here, and I literally am trapped. There's a hand in my pants. I'm locked into rooms. You couldn't even commit suicide if you wanted to, and we did want to. 
Um, so, yeah, that's a really, really good point, that question. Okay. I want to ask you about something in your book. Um, when you had your assessment, they asked you about going to church, and what happened with that? Oh, my gosh. That that was um, – they were masterminds of manipulation and twisting – um, twisting facts, twisting words around to frame the child as an addict. And so this is how they did it. Um, for me, anyway, the woman, the, the executive staff member who spoke to me alone in a room for my intake um, was asking me questions, pointed questions, you know, accusing me of being violent in the home and, and um you know, you ran away, clearly that means that you are a delinquent. And then she kind of shifted gears um, saying, you know, talking about church. And, I, you know, she, her persona kind of shifted. She seemed positive, and I felt like, oh, oh, good. You know, you, when you're a teenager, you know how to kind of work the system, work the adults. I saw, mm-hmm, my, mm-hmm. I saw my out there, like, oh, church, yes, I'm a saint. I go to church all the time, and... and um, she brought up communion and oh yeah, I did communion. I'm you know, I did the whole thing and and I even get to drink the wine and uh, you drank the wine. You told me you never drank alcohol. You just lied to me. You do drink alcohol and you lied. So you're a lying alcohol drinking teenager. And then she turned around and told my mother that she caught me in a lie about alcohol. It's crazy. I mean, it's brilliant, right? It's brilliant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and one big emphasis in all the sessions, as you mentioned over and over, they kept saying, get honest, get honest, get honest. But they wanted you to lie about how many drugs you used, wasn't that it? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, I had smoked pot. I didn't even know how to smoke pot. You know, I wanted to. I wanted to be cool. I thought, you know, if if I could become a druggie, then I would be cool. I didn't know how to smoke pot. I I mean, I don't even think I'd really ever been stoned. Um so what was I going to say? I had nothing to say. And and the kids like me who came in there with no history of drug use, um, they had it in for us. They had special words and phrases to, you know, beat us with. So to, to literally to stop the abuse, to stop the assault, you had to give them what they were demanding, which is confession. And so... You started making up lies, and if they didn't buy your first round of lie, if they didn't buy your first round of lies, if it wasn't bad enough, if you didn't paint a picture of yourself as bad enough, you had to make up more. And many, 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 many kids resorted to describing scenes of having sex with siblings, having sex with animals. I mean, lies. These just lies, but. You needed to be bad enough. You needed to be self-flagellating enough to get to move on, to get to progress. Now, in group one time, you uh, tried to describe how you'd been sexually abused by your stepfather. And what happened when you did that? Oh, my gosh. And this didn't just happen to me. This, I think, was a pretty common tactic. Um, I described that and um later on i was 
confronted. That's that's the word for. Um, I, it's 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 very very difficult to describe the scene, but spit therapy. I think that sort of encapsulates it. Spit therapy. Your your peer, your peers were surrounding you, and they were literally thrashing around with their hands in the air, spitting and 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 throwing their bodies around and and you know hurling their fists at you to get the opportunity. They did all that to make staff call on them so they would have the opportunity to stand up in your face and scream at you and spit in your face. And I'm talking, you know, half an inch away from your face. While you stood and the whole group watched this. Um, So I was stood up to be confronted and multiple peers screamed at me about how, um, how I was a whiny little slut and how um I had to find my part in the abuse and that I it was it was my own fault that I had made my stepfather abuse me sexually. Um basically, you know, as a small child I had somehow been asking for it. So that and you know, that's that was very common. Um and we those of us who that happened to had to um, bring those incidents up with our parents in later talks and basically, like, apologize for whatever we had done to bring that on to ourselves. Um, in the book, you also you also mentioned something called diaper therapy. What is diaper therapy? Oh, my gosh. I never got diaper therapy, but other kids did. It was, um, if you were being a whiny baby, if... Like what, like the scene I just described, you know, if you were, if if the group and staff deemed you as being whiny, um, or not taking responsibility for yourself, you might get diaper therapy, which was where you had to sit in group wearing nothing but a diaper. Okay, you, you can't make this stuff up. Oh, I know. Um, it was. I also heard about this very commonly in uh, Eden House, which was a therapeutic community for adults in uh, Minneapolis, or it's in Minnesota, um, which it's still in operation, but they had to take all this away because they got sued and everything. Uh, but they used to dress the adults in nothing but a diaper, you know, and call them a big baby. Or if any of the adult men said hello to a woman, they would be forced to dress in drag for a month. Wow. Oh. Wow. So, what is toilet paper therapy? Oh, my gosh. Toilet paper therapy... You wouldn't, by the way, there were no doors on the bathrooms in the building. You know, you were watched, just you were watched, studied. Um, When you were a newcomer, you had someone staring at you all the time, including when you wiped. Um, And when you were an old comer, when you were on second phase or higher, there was always somebody, you know, there was always somebody in the room with you anyway. Um, So that's, that's a little aside about bathroom functions. But toilet paper therapy... Um, was a form of punishment where you would get two squares of toilet paper, period. You got two squares of toilet paper. And anything you couldn't get with those two squares, you were going to live with it. You were going to sit in group all day with a lack of hygiene, shall we say, and you were going to just sit in it 
um, for girls, you know, at a certain time of month, that was particularly unpleasant. What was the spanking machine? Oh my gosh, that is just bizarre. It was it was a human caterpillar. Now it was only your gender, okay? So a girl going through the spanking machine was only going to have other girls' hands on them, but um, the the group would line up um, basically, you know, the front of one girl pressed into the back of the next girl, and they would spread their legs, and um, the person going to the spanking machine would have to crawl through all of these girls' spread legs and the girls would be leaning over and smacking them on the butt, smacking the, the girl going through the spanking machine. They would be smacking her on the butt as she went through all of their legs. Okay. And what ha- what about your education? Did uh, you have uh, classes? Did you have math and science and everything? No. No. Nope. When you earned third phase, you could go to school or work. I um, It took me 10 months to get on third phase. Okay, so for 10 months, there was absolutely no opportunity, none whatsoever for any kind of education. I could read the Bible or the big book. That's it. Um, and then for me, once I hit third phase, I was so terrified and brainwashed. Um, I tried to go to school in two different host homes, and I couldn't hack it. I could not hack it. I couldn't, I mean, how how do you, you know, you're, you're a cult kid. You're, I'm trying not to swear, you're really messed up. You can't go to a public school every day. I couldn't. So for 16 months, I just did not get any education at all. Okay. Um what well, what happened when you graduated from straight and you tried to go back to school? Uh how did it work? I because I was an out of towner, I my home was in Connecticut and the straight that I graduated from was in the Boston area. Um I didn't have you know straight support right there with me. So basically, um I was parachuted back into Connecticut and straight bye-bye waved at me and I went back to my druggy high school and oh my god I mean oh my god that again I'm I'm kind of speechless about it because by the time I graduated um, all I wanted to do was was stay in straight I couldn't stand the thought like any good cult anything outside of the cult is terrifying and they're going to get you I didn't want to leave straight at the end, um, but I had to go back to my high school where my friends were, and everybody like, where did you go? You you just disappeared for a year and a half, and um, I just, I mean, I, I was desperate to kill myself, and I'm really surprised I didn't. Um, I ended up getting on like emergency triple doses of Prozac, which turned me into a zombie. But um, that was some of the hardest times. Um, should have a little kid, you know, and nobody. Uh, one thing I found interesting, um, what this, the seven steps in straight, they uh, seem to be derived uh, ultimately from the 12 steps of AA. Uh, but you said after you left straight, you went to a lot of AA meetings and found them comforting and helpful. So how did that work for you?
Oh, jeez. You just dropped out of here. Hello, it looks like our caller has dropped. I am going to try and see if I... Oh, there she is. Okay. Hello. Hi. Yeah, I'm I got so you sorry. back. I don't know what happened there. I don't know either, but you're back. So um, <laughs> we got a little pause of uh, dead air there, but not too bad. Um, I was just asking, um, uh, the seven the seven steps in straight are kind of, they're kind of ripped off from uh, the 12 steps of AA, but you said after you left straight that you went to a lot of AA meetings and found them very comforting and helpful. So how did that work for you? Yeah, it's really shocking. Um, Connecticut is at least southern Connecticut, Fairfield County, Connecticut, right outside New York. It's really a terrible place. It's it's soulless and it's cruel. Um, but shockingly, the AA meetings in Trumbull, Connecticut, were full of kind, kind people. It's nothing short of a miracle. When I got out of straight, um, AA meetings were the only place that felt comfortable to me because they sort of spoke the same language, and there I wasn't a freak. Um, so did you did you find the steps were the twelve steps were comforting, or did you ignore them, or just uh, go for the people, or how did you do? I just went for the people, but I never really like quote unquote worked the steps. I don't know if anybody really does. I mean, I could talk the lingo and you know whatever I wanted to talk about, I could label it. Oh, I was working my whatever step, um, but I never really did any of any of that process but um you know I, I would go to these meetings and these i was like the little um mascot i was a little kid with 16 months of sobriety and i you know spoke the language and and uh higher power and blah 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 and all these adults kind of loved me for it i represented hope or youth or something um, and they were a surrogate family for me. They were not only a surrogate straight, but they were surrogate parents for me. So I was at meetings, you know, seven days a week, and it it was my lifeline just because people cared there. You know, people wanted to hear what I had to say, and it was like a, it was like a big old hug. And uh, that's, that's, but you don't find that in Southern Connecticut, so yeah. Okay, Straight itself is uh, was shut down, but are there spinoffs of Straight that uh, operated afterwards or are still operating today? There have been many of them, and um, thanks to the advocacy of really kind of um, anti-troubled teen industry crusaders. They have all been shut down with the exception of one, which is in Canada. And that one was um, founded by former straight staff members. Okay. I heard there's still uh, some that are uh, not in, just in Canada. There's some that are functioning abroad now um, in the Philippines or Mexico. There are programs now... There. There are programs that are very similar to Straight that mm -hmm. are operate that are operating outside of the U.S. Um, and there, you know, you can get away with so much more, at least in certain countries. Um, to my knowledge, they are not direct descendants of Straight, but it's all basically the same thing. You know, this this form of 
um, you know, abuse as therapy. And they're definitely out there. They're definitely out there. Um, some of the worst things that I've heard of are like kids being kept in dog cages outside for days as mm. punishment. Um, and really, you know, intense physicality like that in those places. Um, just uh, last weekend, I watched a movie. It's called Over the GW. Have you seen that one? Mm-hmm. I have, yeah. Do you think that was a good representation? I do. I it was very accurate. Um now that that movie featured um a, somebody a cop out from straight somebody being able to run away and uh, I couldn't, you know, I I never mustered that kind of courage, but absolutely um it's it's really hard to convey though the um just the terror and the desperation that that we felt when we were in there um and some some people have about my book some people um have expressed sort of um a regret that I didn't delve into some of the really you know really intensely abusive stuff inside of straight um and maybe another author will will do that someday um but it's I guess what I'm saying is the reality of it was so much worse than I think any of our art can convey. Um, but short answer, yes, absolutely, it's a, it's an accurate depiction. Okay, uh, we're about running out of time, so give us your website and your book and where people can buy it. Okay. Um, my website is www.straightling.com. That's S T R A I G H T L I N G. Um, and you can read a sample chapter of my book there. You can order the book there. Um, it's also on Amazon.com, the book itself, or the ebook. And it's on Smashwords. And on Smashwords, you can get it for any of the e reader devices. If you go to Amazon, you can read a huge chunk of it. They do um, like a, a full tenth of the book is is available for viewing on Amazon. Okay, I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Cindy Etler. Yeah, thank you. And everyone, come back next week. Our guest will be Dr. Anna Baranovsky, and we'll be talking about what is PTSD and what is compassion fatigue. So I will see you all next week, and good night. Thank you.